G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane. I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Uh, in a few minutes we'll uh, pray about that, but I've just got something for us to ponder first. Could we uh, just put before us two possibilities? Two possibilities, and perhaps neither of them uh, is a neat fit for you. That's all right. I suspect that each of us tends uh, one way or the other, at least in some measure. So on the one hand, uh, I'd like to put this, the, the shortness of my life and the nearness of God. That's on the one hand, the shortness of my my life and the nearness of God. On the other hand, the second option, uh, the promise of a life of plenty and uh, the pursuit of protecting that plenty uh, as long as possible. So here's the question, which set of priorities governs your day-to-day life? The shortness of life and the nearness of God, on the one hand, or on the other, a life of plenty and that dogged pursuit of protecting that life of plenty as long as humanly possible. Which priorities shape your daily decisions uh, and direct your steps and govern your plans and your decision-making, guide your thoughts, uh, perhaps occupy your mind, uh, keep you awake at night? Uh, It seems to me in Luke chapter 12 that Jesus presents us with Um, more than several, really, uh, several arresting images uh, which spread throughout the chapter and it gives us a pretty clear sense as to which of these two sets of priorities he would nudge us toward, push us toward, um, cause us to contemplate and um, recognise in practical ways in our lives. So, for instance, just to uh, span the passage briefly here with me, verse 5, chapter 12, verse Five, little number five in the text, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body's been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Uh, And in case you're not familiar, that's God that he's talking about. I know that in sort of popular culture, Satan is the boss of hell, but biblically speaking, Jesus is saying, no, fear God. He's the one who has control over your destiny, even beyond the grave. Uh, or down at verse 20, for instance, we've got another arresting kind of image there. Um, God said to this um, man who had all the plenty, remember, stored up and everything. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? Right? You can see it there, can't you? The shortness of life and the nearness of God. And further down... It spans the passage, do you see? Verse 39, have a look down at verse 39. Um, There's a a metaphor here, but understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now, friends, why are some of those images, um, how would you describe them? Kind of frightening, you know, fearsome. Um, foreboding and and quite blunt, I take it that it's just that Jesus speaks to a very mixed audience here, it's a very large crowd around about him and even though he's speaking to his disciples in particular, he's doing it in the hearing of uh, many in that audience who stood at odds with Jesus, who needed to ditch their current priorities in life and reassess how they were living and what they were living for. Hence, some of the bluntness, I think, 
But whether he's gentle or hard, I, I, look, sometimes us, his disciples need a bit of a kick in the pants, don't we? So maybe it was directly for them. Anyway, whether he's gentle or harsh, I think he is calling on us to weigh carefully our own lives, your life this morning. Will we live lives today that demonstrate a present awareness of the shortness of life and the nearness of God? Do I presently live by those? Or is it another set of priorities entirely that keeps me awake at night? Now, why does Jesus ask the question at all? Why is he pushing the crowd with these images and warnings and fearful realities? I take it that Jesus believes that we will lead smaller, poorer, darker, in some senses shorter in the eternal scheme of things under the judgment of God, uh, lives if we govern our lives by the pursuit of plenty in this present life and the protecting that plenty at all costs, smaller, darker lives, much better in Jesus' wisdom in this passage, I think, far richer, more healthy and whole to govern our lives instead with the shortness of this life and the nearness of God before our very eyes. And Luke 12, issues to you, to me, to us, a sober call to do just that. So, let's uh, uh, pray together and then we'll, we'll dive into Luke 12. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, you are holy and unapproachable in light and yet you are near to us and you're present with us and you desire to be present with us. You're with us even now by your Spirit. We each sit before you this morning, O God, responsible for our own lives and we are aware of that, we are responsible to you and to no other, in a sense. And we know that we each sit before you, before Jesus, solely because you're a forgiving God, you're a gracious God and though we have fallen short, your way with us again and again has been mercy instead of condemnation. You've given us a fresh start again and again with the kind of grace that refreshes us, that releases us, yes, to live new lives in a new direction. But Father God, we do admit to our shame that we also drift and we forget that firm mooring of grace, the death and resurrection and return of the Lord Jesus and our lives start to be very much at sea, we confess in terms of the day-to-day decisions, the things that drive us, our priorities, our approach to situations and relationships. God, we know we sail away on a course that bears little resemblance to the course of your presence and your purpose for us. So, Father, may Christ's wisdom here in Luke chapter 12 especially refresh us, even as it rebukes us, even as it reminds us that he has gone ahead. He lived with the shortness of life and the nearness of God directing his steps unto our salvation. So God, mobilise us today, please, into the footsteps of Christ afresh. And in Jesus' name, we ask for your help in that. Amen. Could we briefly try to reacquaint ourselves with our cultural context and the the context in Luke chapter 12? I think it's important for us if we're going to grasp Jesus' teaching here. And I'll do that with three questions. Are we the first generation on the planet of believers to see coordinated criticism of Christ and of Christians turned into something of a public preoccupation and a sport? 
Are we the first generation to see uh, in some places, not in all places, but in some places, droves of people turning to Christ, um, droves flocking to Jesus? Yes, but some of those droves and people and uh, contexts so openly and obviously self-absorbed, even as they uh, flock to Jesus in a way that troubles us. We want to be identified with Jesus, but do I want to be identified with that mob? We find the behaviour of those so-called followers of Christ kind of repulsive and confusing for us as Christians. Are we the first generation in history to find the authentic voice of Jesus desperately hard to hear? We want to hear Jesus but he is surrounded by so much fluff and noise and bustle and sham. Let's pick it up from the, uh, the end of chapter 11, uh, if you would please, just the last two verses there. Suffice it to say, that was their world, absolutely as much as it is ours. So, Luke 11, verse 53, when Jesus went outside, remember he'd had a meal with the, the Pharisees, the religious elite um, in, uh, in Judaism, and uh, it had not gone well. Uh, when Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Do you see the coordinated public criticism by the sharpest minds of their generation? turned into almost a sport. Keep reading. So, 12 verse 1, meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so that they were trampling on one another. I find that sickening, don't you? These people are flocking to Jesus. How on earth does a person who flocks to hear Jesus at the very same moment trample another human being? What on earth is going on there? Uh, and then, uh, so thousands gathered, verse 1, uh, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples and perhaps then as now, sincere people were straining to hear the voice of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I want to say that following Jesus as he marched toward Jerusalem for that last fateful time has always meant walking in the presence of people and priorities that are confusing and conflicting, that is the context in which they and we, in our lives, must strain to hear the voice of Christ. It wasn't easier to be a Christian back then. It wasn't easier to hear the voice of Jesus and to live for Him. His words aren't unrealistic for our day and age, over the top in our culture as if the Christian life seemed so much more plausible back then. Jesus called those first disciples to live according to the shortness of life and the nearness of God under three traits and that's uh, how I'm going to be structuring things today. He called them to display quiet courage, deliberate detachment and realistic readiness. Am I living according to the shortness of life and the nearness of God? Or on the other hand... Am I chasing the promise of plenty and protecting that at all cost? Well, here's how it could look. Does my life, our lives, your life, bear these three marks or has the world buffeted us off course? We begin with the, the very unremarkable, unexciting, um, perhaps unimpressive sounding trait, at least as I make it out. Firstly, quiet courage is what we're called to here, quiet courage. 
Is that what's required to live a life governed by the shortness of life and the nearness of God? Quiet courage. So let's read from chapter 12, verse 1. So we've just heard the religious uh, Jewish leaders, those Pharisees, they were sharpening their verbal swords, weren't they? To take Jesus apart. And now chapter 12, verse 1. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight and what you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Just pause there for a moment. We'll read on in a second. Uh, Why does Jesus say that last bit, do you think? Verses 2 and 3, why does he say that? Verse 3 especially. Um, Do you think he means to prick the consciences of sensitive Christians about the secret things that they may or may not have done? or said? Or do you think he means to comfort Christians who find articulate enemies of Jesus all around them as among the most fearsome things in all the world? What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I suspect it's the latter, friends. Now, if you have some things riding on your conscience and you know they're going to be believed, uh, be revealed to the Lord in the final judgment, then you have some business to do with the Lord. But I think here, it's a word of comfort to Christians who find themselves in a hostile environment. God knows what those baddies are up to, to put it in kind of childish language in a way. And he hears your own quiet, personal confession of the name of Jesus. Don't worry about those articulate enemies of Christ. Verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that can do no more. But I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Which again, it sounds threatening, doesn't it? Perhaps, in a way, it is. But I suspect Jesus means here to, uh, he means for them to courageously confront the reality that the fear of mere men leads to some very foolish decisions sometimes. Why would you fear them? Why would you fear her? Why would you fear him? Quiet courage, Christian. When the hypocrites and the harsh critics And the know-it-alls, when they assail ordinary believers, quiet confidence. Because know this, verse 6, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them's forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Do you ever feel that kind of pressure in your life or that kind of stress or uh, what is it, shame perhaps on the public scale as as to the the, the critics around you and their loud, articulate voices and your own quiet confession. Perhaps it's always been the strategy of Christ's opponents to uh, to make God's children feel small and feel insignificant, like no one cares about them, no one cares about you, no one notices your opinion, no one would miss it if you stopped believing in Jesus. 
turns your back on him. Christian Jesus is saying, he cares. He notices. He sees. He has every hair on your head numbers numbered and you matter to him. You count to him. Now, in their day, uh, of course, um, speaking up for Jesus, uh, which is what's on view there in, in the following verses, it might well cost them their life, mightn't it? After all, uh, you've got verse 4 there still ringing in their ears. Uh, Fear not those who kill the body and after that can do no more. That's pretty serious. Uh, in our day, or at least in our context, actually in our day, there's all sorts of places where you can lose your life for being a Christian. Uh, but in our context, at least, not so much. That's not the threat to us. But I, I think very helpfully, um, Daryl Bock reminds us of this. He says, the desire, reflecting on this verse, the desire to impress people, the desire to impress people may lead to a double life. But a double life is a destructive, empty lifestyle that ignores what God always sees. Do you have relationships like that? Friendships, perhaps, uh, people in your peer group, uh, people in your family, perhaps. The desire to impress people may lead to a double life. You know, it's just the pressure to keep a lid on your faith or, or on particular beliefs, beliefs because, well, it'd blow your chances with that crowd, really. Or have you found yourself uh, tempted how do I put this, let's say, to just relax in certain company, your moral judgments, your ethical standards, it could be about all sorts of things, that, the sort of big ticket obvious ones, sex or alcohol, or, uh, but it can be subtler things, the way that you speak when you're around them, the jokes that you're willing to entertain and go along with. Why? Well, because I just want to fit in when I'm around them, do you see? Because that's what I want to do. Friends, I think it takes quiet confidence to live by the shortness of life and the nearness of God. Would you agree? Are you cultivating that? Or are we capitulating? Now, before we move on to the second of these uh, traits, uh, have you ever been haunted by verse 10? I know that it haunts some Christians and I think it's a significant enough verse for us to drill into for a few minutes. So, let's have an aside on the unforgivable sin there. Uh, if you, we'll read it from verse 8 just to get it in context, but verse 10 is the focus for us. Verse 8, little number 8 in the text, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others... Jesus speaking, uh, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. And by the way, Son of Man is Jesus' uh, ordinary way of referring to himself. All right? So, he's referring to himself, the Son of Man. Verse 9, but whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. I wonder if you've ever known someone like this. I've known people who are convinced that they have committed the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who's in that kind of a pickle? And so, you see, it doesn't matter what they do now or 
uh, how sincerely they come back to Jesus or how many tears uh, flood from their eyes, I'm done for, will not be forgiven. It says it, I'm smoked. Can I just say two things about this verse? And if this is particularly a, a sore point for you, come and have a chat with me or one of the elders afterwards. It deserves a longer conversation. Can I just say two things about that verse for now? One, I think the context here helps us enormously in understanding what Jesus is saying. Um, is Jesus, uh, I think this has been one of the issues in Luke 11 um, particularly, is Jesus from God or is he from Satan? Right, it's been one of the things that they've been wrestling with. Does he do his miracles by the hand of God, the finger of God in their midst, or by some impure spirit? Uh, do you remember from last week? Are we witnessing the kingdom of God amongst us or some agent of evil? Now, the religious heavies, as we've just seen, end of chapter 11, uh, well, they've made up their mind, haven't they? They've settled their uh, opinions on him that Jesus was an agent of evil, he was advancing anything but the kingdom of God, and so they set, him, uh, set themselves against him. Now, that's some context. Second thing to say is, I think Jesus then is basically saying, look, I'm really not concerned on my own account, what people say about the Son of Man. They say what you like about the Son of Man, in a sense... In fact, I've come precisely so that all can be forgiven for that kind of stuff. But if you reject the actual work of God in your midst, if you attribute the saving work of God to an evil spirit, then where are you going to go to find forgiveness? People will say all sorts of things about me in the the inner rooms and whisper opinions back and forth about me, so be it, that's the time that we're in. But when the dust settles, if you fix your minds against God's spiritual saving work in this world, then in the end you're lost. Anyway, if that's a question that's genuinely haunted you and uh, you you want to have a chat about it, well, we've got time over lunch today, don't we? Um, or uh, indeed have a chat with any of the elders, it'd be worth it. But first trait, quiet courage. Let's come come back to these uh, traits of someone living by the shortness of life and the nearness of God. Quiet courage. Secondly, deliberate detachment. Deliberate detachment, namely from the pursuit of plenty, detachment from the pursuit of plenty. Have we the quiet courage in life to cultivate a detachment from the pursuit of plenty that is so prevalent in our culture around us, friends. I'm not sure this is an easy one for us. Let's read from verse 13. Verse 13. Uh, And as we come to the the picture in there, I'll try to put the emphasis in the right spot so we really feel it. So anyway, from verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Certainly sounds a plausible thing that siblings would say, doesn't it? Someone, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain 
laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Friends, I guess the question is for us in the culture that we live in, if I'm not living to get the life of plenty and protect it at all costs, if I'm not living to make sure that I've got plenty for myself, to make sure that my kids have plenty, to see that my own have all that they need and will ever need, so that we, mine, ours, stand to take life easy, eat, drink and be merry... If I'm not living for that, then what am I living for? What is preoccupying my mind? What is in the driving seat of my decisions in life, my direction, what course I choose? I think Jesus is pretty accurate of our culture, a little bit further down, when he says, verse 30, where he says, for the pagan world runs after all such things. And your Father knows that you need them. But seek His kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Now, when my mates look across at me, do they see yet another late 30s Aussie male running after all the things that all the other late 30s Aussie males are chasing in life? Or do they see something different? Now, when your peers look across at you, whether you're 18 or 48 or 80, whether you're wealthy or less so, however it looks at your age and stage in life, do they see yet another who runs after all such things? Or do they see one who knows that her Heavenly Father knows what you need but who seeks his kingdom first. I think it's deliberate detachment from the pursuit of plenty, isn't it? And our culture will not help us with that. Our culture will not applaud us for it. Our culture won't aspire to it if we get it right, I suspect. Why? Well, because we live not for the promise of plenty and to protect that as long as possible, but with the shortness of life and the nearness of God before our eyes. And not just the shortness of my life, our lives, the life of mine. No, their life, the shortness of human life and the nearness of God to us in His kingdom. God is near us all. Are we ready? Which leads us to our third and final trait, a realistic readiness. Realistic as in, in line with the reality of the return of the risen Lord Jesus. Realistic readiness, which is what practically replaces, I think, our priority for plenty. Join with me, verse 32, at verse 32, where Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. 
for where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. Be dressed, ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It'll be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. We'll have them recline at the table and we'll come and wait on them. Down at verse 40. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So, brothers and sisters uh, of Good News Christian Church today, does your lamp burn daily in anticipation of the return of Jesus? Is that what's got us, what grips us in life? Will he find us, will he find you dressed with a readiness that befits this conviction, life is short and Christ is coming? Will you miss out on things if you live that way? I think you will and Jesus is preparing us for that. I think I will. Will treasures pass you by? Will opportunities go missed? Will there be opportunities for plenty that you probably don't even recognise because your mind is elsewhere, it's on the kingdom? So, you'll entirely miss some opportunities for plenty in this life, I expect, if you allow yourself to be preoccupied with the things of Jesus instead of the things of wealth and the treasures of this life and so on. I think so. Is it possible, can we have it both ways? Is it possible to be both ready for anything and everything in life while being ready for the moment uh, by moment expectation of Christ's return ushering in the next? No. (laughs) I think Jesus is preparing us uh, for the fact that we've got to make a choice, Christian. One will choose a readiness that loves to see Jesus' kingdom grow, loves to see my kingdom expand, its treasures reach more people, its grace touch more lives in the world, his name quietly confessed by more believers in the inner rooms. And one will choose a readiness for this life as best they can, hoping against hope, against the reality actually, that this very night your life will not be demanded of you. Which life would you rather live? The smaller, shorter, ultimately more tragic one or the broader, deeper, richer, longer, the one that has a readiness for the very real return of Christ that will be the relief and joy of everyone who has longed for his appearing? Which would you prefer? Could we close with this? Verse 37 Take another look at verse 37. These are the words of Jesus. Remember the Son of Man, as He heads toward Jerusalem to complete the saving work of God for all mankind, He does it with quiet courage. He does it with deliberate detachment. He does it with a realistic readiness for what lies ahead of Him. And His promise to believers, to us, mere servants, mortals, who are distracted and divided in our minds and we try to get our life together around Jesus again. Uh, We're in all sorts of a mess as to whether we'll really live this life governed by the shortness of life and the nearness of God. Look at Jesus' promise to us, verse 37. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, 
This is a stupendous promise. He will dress himself to serve. We'll have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Let's pray. Father, what a spectacular thought it is that the God of the universe would be pleased to serve us in love, would be pleased to have us recline at the table in his presence with our God who's come to serve and wait on us. What a strange glory you have, Father. But that is the God that we find in Christ. Father, we confess this morning that we, we know our culture's obsession with material possessions and plenty and peace in this life alone. And we know our own sinful absorption with abundance and self. God, we confess our conflicted hearts before you and we lean yet again on your grace and on your mercy and we call, O oh God, for renewal in our hearts that places the coming kingdom of Jesus back where it ought to be, at the heart of our lives and in the driver's seat of our decisions and direction. Father, we know that we won't live forever in these bodies, not in this world. And we know that our life will one night be demanded of us unless Christ returns first. So, Father, may those realities loosen our grasp on our things and our gain and move us to value as treasure heaven's advance in this world through the, through the gospel, lives encountering your spirit's voice, people finding Christ and finding a deeper and broader and longer life in him, finding liberation from the spiritual poverty of a life of temporary plenty. So grant us that joy more and more, please. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.